The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're discussing the Lower Decks season finale, The Stars at Night. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today on the panel is Jimmy Yakin. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Yeah, Father Corey couldn't be with us, unfortunately. He's not uh, feeling well, but, uh, but he'll be back with us next time, I'm sure. Uh, folks, I want to be well, sure. Well, since next time is another pre-record we're doing today, maybe not. <laughs> that's right, and I'll, I'll I'll mention that in a second because that's a special extra episode you guys are going to get this week. Uh, before we get to that, I want to tell you to make sure you share the podcast with your friends. Help us grow our community of listeners. That's the number one way we grow our audience and reach more people. And I want to tell you about another show on the StarQuest Network you are sure to enjoy called The Secrets of Star Wars. And you can find that wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash Star Wars. Yeah, so this time we're talking about Lower Decks, the season finale episode of Lower Decks. Uh, But we're going to have another episode for you that's going this is going to drop on Monday and the October 31st. And the first episode of the second half of the Prodigy season, the first the, season, the, the first episode of the second half of the first season of Prodigy. <laughs> yes, we're going to record that right after we record this and we will drop that episode tomorrow, November 1st. And so you'll have both of those this week. Uh, the powers that be a Paramount decided to drop two new episodes in the same week, so. We're, we're we're you're going to get an, a bonus, so that'll be nice. And then Father Corey will be back after that uh, for the second episode of Prodigy. All right, got all that. All right, <laughs> let's talk about Lower Decks. Jimmy, can you give us a recap of what happened in this episode? This week, fresh from using his formerly secret Texas-class drone ship, the Alito, to rescue the Cerritos from the Breen, Admiral Buenamigo recommends decommissioning all California-class starships and using the Texas-class ships to conduct second contact missions from now on. Starfleet is inclined to agree, but Captain Freeman convinces them to test the Cerritos against the Alito in an experiment. They visit multiple planets on second contact missions, and the Alito wins. This is because on one planet, Tendi discovered a tricorder signal that could indicate the presence of life, while the Alito skipped this step. Captain Freeman reports this, arguing that the Texas class's AI coding isn't yet ready. And the coding is more isn't yet ready than anyone suspects because Rutherford recognizes the code as his own. It's what he was working on before his memory was wiped, and it was Admiral Buenamigo who ordered his memory right. So he was the shadowy figure. Worse yet, it's the same code that he used to program Badgie, the unstable AI that killed Shax at the end of season one. Admiral Buenamigo has a heel turn and says he doesn't care. In fact, he's been working against the Cerritos crew for some time to set them up and make them fail so he could launch his Texas-class ships. After admitting this, he gives the Alito autonomous control and orders it to destroy the Cerritos. 
but instead it turns on its creator and kills Admiral Buenamigo. It then activates other Texas-class ships, and they start attacking the starbase. The Cerritos leads these the Texas-class ships away from the station, but the drones are closing on them fast. Shax then gets his lifelong dream fulfilled of ejecting the warp core and using it as a mine. It destroys all the drones except the Alito. Without its warp core, though, the Cerritos is at the Alito's mercy. But Mariner and Petra Aberdeen show up to help, having seen the situation on the news. Petra's ship doesn't have the firepower to help, so they brought all the California-class starships with them. And together, the California-class ships defeat the Alito. Afterwards, Mariner is reinstated in the Cerritos crew, and everyone celebrates. But in possibly the first post credit scene in Star Trek history, we flash over to the debris field from the finale of Season 1. We see a tractor beam lock on to the implant that Shax ripped off Rutherford's face, and the image of a smiling badgie appears on the screen. The end. <laughs> so I want to talk about the meaning of some some words that they use here, or some titles. Uh, first How about the, the title? The title of the episode, The Stars at Night. And yeah. I, I mentioned it to some, some people that didn't, they didn't understand it. Uh, I married someone from Texas, so I know... That the, the song stars is at night are big <laughs> and bright, deep in the heart of Texas. That's right. So it's a reference to the song that uh, stars at night, deep in the heart of Texas. So uh, I, I sing that to my wife on occasion to drive her crazy because she hates when I do that. <laughs> oh. Um the uh, also one of the things that I had in my notes was also about the Texas, California thing. So, yeah, um, in it, there's a kind of joke in the Texas versus California thing, because Texas is way better than California and California is in denial about it. Um, <laughs> and in recent years, it has become all the more obvious because due to the fact California ruins everything. People have been leaving California and in large numbers and moving to Texas to because, the delight of Texans, by the way. <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah. Well, see, they need a welcome wagon program to say, OK, you know how you moved from California because it was so messed up? <laughs> Don't do that here. <laughs> you know, you need to vote differently if you want the goodness of Texas to continue and not have the badness of California just imported. Right. <laughs> um, because, like, for example, they don't have an income tax in Texas. So you don't pay state income tax in Texas. You keep more of your money. Whereas in California, the income tax is large enough that it competes with the national income tax. And among numerous other problems in California of a governmental nature. I mean, California is a beautiful state. Physically, mm. it is gorgeous. Um, it and And so, you know, Props to California geophysically, but in terms of its governance, California is terrible. Case in point, San Francisco. And we won't even go into the problems of governance in San Francisco, but sure. I've I've been on the streets of San Francisco Same and here. I I was appalled. So, um, and this mm -hmm. is personal for you, Jimmy, because you have connections to both California and Texas. Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, in any event, you know, since Hollywood is in California, there's kind of a Hollywood joke yeah. in in this episode and la at the end of last episode, where it's the Texas class ships that are a threat to the California class ships. <laughs> I like that. 
there's also a bit of a a twist in the name of Admiral Buenamigo. Like, yes, he's because <laughs> Admiral Malamigo. <laughs> right. Buenamigo is Spanish for good friend. Turns out not so good a friend, which I think is the, a funny little uh, twist turn joke in there. I, I like how they played him totally friendly, though, up until this point. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was. I, I mean, I, I it was a surprise. I mean, although last episode when it was revealed that he was behind the drone ships, mm-hmm. I, you start to get the hint yeah. that maybe there's something going on. But yeah. So we start with this uh, scene where Freeman is being criticized for her lack of professionalism in her ship and in herself uh, at this meeting of what the Starfleet council or something. It's all the admirals. It, it's all the admirals. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so she's trying to defend herself for the events of the last episode, the uh, project swing by operation swing by, I think they called it. And uh, meanwhile, Buenamigo is promoting his drone ships, his automated ships as superior. And I'm thinking like, how can they be superior? If there's no people on board, because isn't the point of Starfleet to go out and meet people like what are you going to how are you going to meet people? Well, they, for second contact, you've already met them. So there's that. Also, yeah. this is this is an issue that they've they've had with Star Trek for a long time, because really sending robotic probes first is I mean, it, Makes we sense. do that now, <laughs> yeah. you know, and and you don't really need humans for 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 missions. Um, in fact, in a lot of ways, it would be smarter not to go first, because you if you've got humans that know where their home planet is, you can torture that out of them. <laughs> Whereas if you send a drone ship that is hooked up to a relay system and does not know where the home world is, you cannot find out where you want to attack. So mm. there are a lot of advantages to sending drones first until you know you can trust the people on the other end. Um, but they, they now they don't think, you know, I guess strategically in that way in Starfleet, you know, um, they're not, they don't have a native realization that other intelligent beings likely evolved as carnivores too and therefore are likely to be a threat and mm. so you need to assume uh that they are a threat until you know they're not um because that's not the starfleet universe <laughs> but they have tried to like sort of you know rationalize they've hung a lantern on the issue and so uh, i think it was in voyager maybe where there was a scene about well why do we even send man ships it's because we want to explore and blah 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 and yeah okay you know it, it i'll let you have a pass at that because your work your work <laughs> of fiction but you should be sending drones to do your advanced work well in fact star trek has this bias against automated yeah. as you mentioned you know, we've had Nomad that went out and went bad. We had V'ger that went out as a drone. You know, these are automated drones that mm-hmm. went bad. So we there's this sort of idea that humans in the loop can can never go bad, <laughs> which, of <laughs> course, we see time and time again in Star Trek that actually they do, too. But it's just kind of this. Yeah, this interesting uh, bias against them. And it. You know, there's a way that you could have. I kept waiting for someone to point this out. I know it's a, it's an animated co- comedic thing, but you could have them work together. You could have yeah. a drone ship go with a manned ship, or have a smaller crew 
aboard the drone ship that's mostly automated. You could send a MALP first. Right, right. I mean, there there are... It would be interesting to see them evolve a little bit in these directions, mm-hmm. but I suppose it makes it less a less interesting drama if you're sending, you know, drones out and then following up the first contact. There's less drama that you're going to encounter in a show. So I, I yeah. get that. Yeah. This, I would note, this episode was very fast-paced. Um, yes. You know, there was not a lot of messing around. Uh, and as a result, I don't, I mean, I, I, I didn't, this wasn't a problem, but it wasn't as comedic as most episodes because yeah. it's, it is more focused on here's a dramatic story that's happening and that leaves less time for jokes. But it was still, you know, very entertaining. I enjoyed the episode a lot. I mm-hmm. just noticed, wow, this is fast paced paced and we're not messing around here. You know, one of the, the funny bits that they did get into it was a recurring th- uh, thing about, Boimler was doing impressions of the bridge crew uh-huh. for his friends. Yep. And and Shax walks in, of course, as he's doing the Shax impression. And this big, you know, burly, strong, you know, Bajoran security officer gets his feelings hurt and runs yeah, out crying. Yeah. No, that was that was great. Yeah. And that's that's a sort of subplot. I didn't I didn't work it into my synopsis because it was um you know, long enough as it was, given the complexity of the plot. But yeah, so uh, so Boimler gets on the outs with Shax at the beginning of the episode. And then um, and, and then he's trying to get back in Shax's good graces and failing during the right. rest of the episode until we get the final crisis where um, where the drones are chasing the Cerritos and and on the bridge, they're debating what to do. And Shax like always, reflexively says, let's eject the warp core. (laughs) And everyone blows past that because that's what he always said. And it's Boimler who stands up and says, no, listen to him. He's right. right. We eject the warp core. We use it as a mine. It blows up and takes out the drones, which it it does, with the exception of the Alito itself. Um, and and then afterwards, Shax is so overjoyed. It's like you, Boimler, gave me the thing I've always wanted. You more than fulfilled my dreams. And he like hugs him and picks him up. And it's like, you're in the pack now, baby bear. <laughs> He's now a baby bear too. <laughs> I know that was pretty good. I, I really like Shax as a, as one of the, the secondary characters because he just, it, it's kind of fascinating to see. He's got this, these many layers that they've mm-hmm. give, given him. And it's kind of fun to see. Yeah. They, they also continue to build layers into the towel guy. Because um, at one point, you know, early in the episode there, uh, Captain Freeman has told the Federation Council, he was like, OK, I, let's do this test and and so forth. But she absolutely does not want it to get out that the uh, California classes uh, service is on the line mm. with this. You know, she, she doesn't want the crew alarmed by they're going to be shut down. And immediately... The we we cut to the lower deckers in a hangar bay, and Boimler runs in and says, "The Felosian's girlfriend's cousin says we're being shut down," <laughs> and and they start talking about it. And number one, I love that we have a Felosian in. He says the Felosian in tactical. Right. So the Felosians are those plant people that look like thistles from the Infinite Vulcan. Oh 
that, right. that Walter Keenig wrote. And so I love that we have a Philosian in, in tactical. <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, they get to talking and this is also something that's apparently been confirmed by, by Eric. And it's like, who's Eric? Oh, he's the towel guy. <gasps> he's the gossip guy. He's never wrong. <laughs> and so, so just like we found out an episode or so ago that he has a girlish shriek when he's startled, we also now know that he's an infallible gossip guy. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're building the layers of this show. I mean, that's that's the, the nice thing about it. There's all these layers on layers. I mean, it's one of the things that Simpsons over 30 years has done really well is it has all these layers of these secondary characters who add this color and this interest to the show and makes it so deep. And, mm-hmm. and I feel like Lower Decks is really getting there. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about Freeman because she's off. I'm not Freeman Mariner because she's off on mm-hmm. she's left Starfleet after what the events of the last episode. And she's with uh, Petra Aberdeen and she raises is, the Lost Ark stuff. Uh, she is Indiana Jonesing it up. <laughs> yes, she really is uh, getting chased by Ferengi through a temple while carrying a scary looking idol, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and beams up at the last minute and she's having fun. But she she kind of confronts Petra like, who's paying for all this? Like, who's behind this? And and it kind of implies in a regular Star Trek story, we would find out that this altruistic uh, uh, you know, campaign to rescue archaeological artifacts from you know, grave robbers and looters is really something nefarious. Somebody bad is behind it. Mm-hmm. And so we get the hint of that until Mariner breaks into Petra's computer and finds out it's Admiral Picard actually yeah. funding this, <laughs> this, th- these efforts. And she's like, Oh darn, that's, that's actually something good. <laughs> that, was, that was a great turn. <laughs> I, I like how, um, you know, so the way that happens is uh, Petra is going off the ship to deal with something. And, um, and, Mariner says, bring me a Slurpee. And so while she's while she's out of the ship, Mariner goes to break into her secret files, at which point Petra walks back in and says, hey, I forgot something. What are you doing? And she realizes she's breaking into her files and it's like, I'm going to find out who's behind all this. It's like, well, go right ahead. (laughs) And and you're thinking there's going to be a big reveal because of how Petra is smug. You know, about, oh, yeah, just go ahead. And it's going to turn out to be this whole thing's a front for a sinister organization. And nope, it's Admiral Picard. <laughs> <laughs> because famously, Picard is an archaeology buff. Uh, and and Patrick confronts Mariner by saying, you're just looking for a reason to go back to Starfleet, aren't you? Yeah. And of course, we, we knew all along that's what, what Mariner would be doing. Uh, so and, that was and Mariner and Mariner admits she's been having fun. She enjoys yes. this work, but she yeah does want to go back to Starfleet. And, you know, by the end of the episode, Mariner has really matured. She's really I mean, she's mm-hmm. still Mariner. She still wants to, you know, buck the system a bit and be a bit iconoclastic. But she's not the dismissive, you know, always insubordinate, uh, pretending she hates Starfleet person she was this character has evolved which again is a nice part of lower decks that they let the characters evolve a little bit Mm -hmm. and it's especially needed in her case because she was the insufferable bad girl yes at the beginning of the show and you can in a comedy freeze characters and never let them develop but but it's less interesting that way right right i mean that's 
again to compare it to Simpsons that those characters are the way they always have been and always will be. Those characters do not really change in large well, ways. In large ways. I mean, they do have a big reset button on the Simpsons that, that they almost always push, but they do introduce elements that they will bring back, you know? Um, mm. So like there's a, they evolved a backstory for Marge and Homer and how they, True. Yeah, and and how they got the kids and how various things came to be the way they are. And they will sometimes bring back characters like, you know, there's an episode where Homer goes to Vegas and, and gets ve- married in Vegas and and they bring back Vegas mom in a later episode and, <laughs> you know, things like that. Yeah. And famously, Ned Flanders wife, you know, dies. Yeah. And, the, and, the, and so those sorts of things do happen. That's true. Uh, so. Then there's this race. Okay, so we talked about the race uh, between Mm -hmm. the two ships. And you mentioned how they're racing to do, what, three missions? Three different planets? Three second contact missions. And the first one is, I don't know why this was considered a second contact mission, because they actually went back to the uh, planet that was in the very first episode of Lower Decks with the Purple Pig People. And okay, you've already done second contact with them. Why I understand checking up on them, but that's not second contact, right? And it that that mission was like I putting up some sort of building of some sort. Yeah. Um, and oh, it, before before they even go there, though, um, you know, now that everybody knows the fate of the California class is on the line. Yeah. Uh, Freeman is like, we've really got to step up our game. I want to see galaxy class execution on this mission. They're talking about like it, uh, Billups, the engineer is saying, I, I, I want to see, you know, Mr. Data level performance out of you, Mr. <laughs> Rutherford. And, <laughs> and, and on, and they, they, they name drop like three enterprise crew members yep. as paragons of efficiency. And, um, one of the things we just see, they don't dwell on it, but we see First Officer Ransom giving lessons in how to sit down on a chair in the crazy Will Riker way. Because if 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 it's it it's not obvious at first glance, but but the actor, Jonathan Frakes, as Will Riker has an insane way of sitting down in chairs. Yes. Allegedly, I, I think I read because of a back problem. That's what I but, heard, yeah. But it just looks ridiculous when you when it's pointed out. And there are super cuts on YouTube of him just <laughs> from episode after yeah. episode doing this over and over. What he does is he approaches a chair from behind, slings his leg over the top of the chair, and then sits down. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like... Dude, if you've got a back problem, is slinging your leg up that high really going to help as opposed to yeah. just walking in front of it and sitting down? Well, so you've got to be tall. Like, you know, I mean, which Jonathan Frakes is, but that's not yeah. something I would ever consider doing. I'd injure myself all day long trying to do that. Yeah, I, I don't I mean, I, I, I find the back explanation dubious because it, it, if you if you've got a, yeah. pro, a problem that interferes with you walking around the front of the chair and then sitting down, yeah. how on earth does that allow you to more comfortably lift your leg up that high and then sit down? It would have to be a very specific like you can't bend forward, which is the how you would normally sit. You can't comfortably bend forward to sit that. 
it's easier if your leg goes to the side. I don't know. <laughs> Someone yeah. should ask Frakes about it. <laughs> I'm 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 dubious. I think it's yeah. I think it's more. It, I think there's a significant possibility he just decided to do it for dramatic reasons to make it look more dramatic, <laughs> and then got called out and he made up the back thing. <laughs> that's that's a strong possibility. Um, so. So they have, yeah, so they do this whole thing. Oh, I love the line Billup says to Rutherford when he talks about, like, I want to see data level efficiency. I want to see those isolinear chips blur, yeah. which is a callback <laughs> to that episode where uh, the naked. The time, naked now. The naked, the naked now. now. Yeah, where he had to put the chips in that Wesley pulled out. While uh, being drunk and he goes, then yeah. they speed up the film so it becomes a blur. Right, right. Um, so, yeah, so they go to this planet and they have to build this structure. And the Cerritos crew is building the structure, whereas then the Alito shows up late because uh, Buen Amigo gave them a head start. Yeah, they were and doing a tortoise in the hair thing, which is which, you know, raises the possibility they're going to win. Yeah. In a, the race in a tortoise and hair like fashion, except this is a comedy. So it's it, it it's fairly obvious that they're going to suggest that and then subvert it by having the Alito win anyway. <laughs> right. Uh, so but the Alito just beams in this prefab structure. Boom. It's there. And I'm like, well, why wouldn't you give that capability to the human crude ships? That would yeah. make those ships like, <laughs> of course. I mean, it's again, it's a, it's their trading drama, but it's like. You know, if you've got these capabilities, why not give them to the ships you already have rather than junk a whole class of ships and build a whole new one? But mm -hmm. yeah, um, so there's so that's that one. Uh, then on the second leg, you mentioned that the planet there is an uninhabited planet, that they're building a science outpost. Uh, there's Again, no life on the not, planet. That's not second contact. Right, right. Building a science post on an uninhabited planet where there's no life. That's kind of the opposite of any contact. Yes, that is support ships, you know, construction crews. But OK, maybe that's a Cerritos mission to uh, California class. So but like you said, Tendi detects a possibility of life, whereas the Alito doesn't. And that should that should immediately disqualify the Alito from this. Like That should have been a disqualifying error if if. Protecting life, prime directive stuff is ignored. That's that's a big flaw. So I thought that was interesting. That kind of got overlooked or well, I mean, given a chance there. They on a writing level, they do it, you know, to show that the programming is flawed on these ships. That's our first indicator that the programming is flawed. And then, right. well, it's, I mean, we have a previous intimation of there's something going on here when Rutherford says he recognizes the code. Yeah. But, but then that there's actually something wrong. The fact it's cutting corners and, and missing scans it should be doing for life is another indicator. Right. Right. So then, the third leg, which was funny, is they have to deliver supplies to a Brigadoon-like planet yeah. that uh, that only appears a couple hours every year or even less. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. And for folks who aren't aware, Brigadoon was a movie, which might have been a play even before that, but it was a movie from the 50s, I think it is, uh, about this fictional Irish town, Brigadoon, that only appears once a year on a particular day. Mm -hmm. uh, probably St. Patrick's Day or something um, that these people stumble into and discover. And it's an idyllic, 
you know, fantasy village uh, sort of thing. And, and it's become and because things phasing in and out of reality fits very well into science fiction, Brigadoon has inspired lots of science fiction things. I mean, mm-hmm. there are m- yeah. multiple examples in Star Trek alone. Right. Um, like, you know, in Deep Space Nine and places like that, it's like, oh, this planet only comes into our universe for so long every so often. And right. And I, it's, it's in comic books, too, in the Legion of Superheroes, uh, then 30th century, because this came out in the 1970s. There was a, an island called Marzal that would only phase into the rest of the world for a period of time every so often. And uh, I've I've seen multiple Brigadoon things like that. And so I like how Captain Freeman is just able to say, it's one of those Brigadoon-like planets that only appears for a few hours every year. It's like that's so common that, you know, when people, mm-hmm. everyone's going to be aware of it. Um, and it, I mean, obviously it creates this dramatic tension of the ticking clock as part of it too. Um, but then the people on the planet are like sort of Irish analogs. They have the accent and they live in these like simplistic, you know, conditions. Huts. Yeah. So th- that was cute. Um, and they're, and they're totally waiting for their, for their phase in and beam in of supplies. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So yeah, but the, uh, the Alito gets there on time, but the, uh, the, the Cerritos misses the window of opportunity and loses. But that's about the time when Rutherford discovers that the Alito in the Texas class are running his old AI code from before his accident. So he recognizes it's the code that was in uh, his ship that he was building. We saw a few episodes ago and is in his implant device uh, that was used to create Badgie on the holodeck. And that's the first time we've had those two things connected because we mm-hmm. only learned about the ship that he was working on uh, like a couple episodes ago. Yeah. And so this is the first time we've, we would have had it connected with the code for Badgie. And I know I think I was theorizing at the time that this rogue Starfleet officer, it was a might be a Section 31 thing or something mm-hmm. along those lines. But it turns out it's Admiral Bornamigo as a lower ranking officer at the time who I guess he, he expresses like that. There's so many admirals in Starfleet that you, which is kind of funny because they are a lot of admirals that you have to kind of do something to stand out. And the, this is his effort to stand out and be noticed for promotion and that sort of thing. Yeah. So they, after, after discovering the problems with the code, they go to Admiral Buenamigo over the link and Carol confronts him and and he admits that this is when his heel turn happens. Yep. And he admits that he uh, has, among other things, been setting them up. You know, he assigned them to go to Deep Space Nine. He expected those negotiations to fail and they didn't in spite of his efforts. And uh, we also learned that he set them up at Breca last episode so he mm-hmm. could have the Texas ship come in and save them. Um. And Carol says, you are not one of those bad faith admirals that's up to no good. You're better than this, Les. 
And he says, I'm really not. <laughs> <laughs> but but they're they're hanging a lantern on another trope in in Star Trek, which is the bad faith admiral. Right. Um, because that's one of the key functions of admirals in in Star Trek is to mess <laughs> things up, to swoop in in an episode, mess things up for our regular heroes and then let them deal with it. Right. And often that involves the admiral, the admiral. Uh, being a villain. Sometimes they're not a villain. They're just a problem. Like Admiral Necheyev, the blonde lady yeah, who was yep. Picard, sort of Picard's thorn in the side. She would show up and make demands of him. And she wasn't a villain. She was just very inconvenient. Yes. Um, but then there are others who, who who and they may show up and see and initially be friendly. And then they go bad like um, uh, Brock Peters playing the Admiral of Cartwright. the Admiral Cartwright, yeah. who initially was not a villain in the Star Trek movies and then became one. Right. Um, but yeah, you've got a lot of a lot of admiral problems in, in Starfleet. <laughs> <laughs> Starfleet has too many admirals. I think that's the, the clearly. Uh, so now uh, Buen Amigo having been discovered, he wants the Alito to destroy the Cerritos to so that they can destroy the okay. evidence. And this is a plot hole because he gives it autonomous control and says, now kill the Salitos. And, and it says, I don't take orders from you anymore, father. Yes. It's like, okay, it's already got weapons that you've been using to blast things. Why right. are you giving it autonomy? Just tell it to blast the Cerritos. Right, right. Uh, what was the reason he gave, like, the, the excuse why it was okay to blast the Cerritos? Like, what would have been the... I forget that. Um, I don't recall him giving an excuse. I thought he just ordered it to do it. Yeah, I mean, because then you'd have to explain why is the drone ship destroying a manned uh, ship? Um, mm -hmm. But so, uh, but it goes badgy, <laughs> so to yeah. speak. Uh, kills one amigo, which was a dark turn in this oh, episode. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. yeah, and it just, it fires on the part of the spaceship, where, uh, space station where he is and just blows it up. And so this is oh, and it also gets its own catchphrase. Oh, the Alito, the Alito says multiple times in the episode when it's about to attack someone, "I will burn your heart in fire." <laughs> that's right. That's right. Oh man, I didn't pick that one as my uh, my sign off, but uh, that, that would have been a good one. We so, we also got a nice variation on Captain Freeman's catchphrase: "Warp me." Yeah, because when they realize the urgency of the situation, at one point she says, "Maximum warp me." Right, right. That, those are the two good phrases in this one. And they're at Douglas Station, which is looks like Starbase One floating over that's over Earth. But I I gather this isn't the same. This isn't Starbase One, right? Or is like I never kind of. I'm not um, sure where we are in terms of that. Yeah, because they call it Douglas Station, but it looks like Starbase One, and I don't know if that's the same thing or not. I I, I forgot to look it up in uh, in in the memory alpha, but in any case, yeah. um, it's. I don't I don't know that it particularly matters or just no. blowing up blowing up a starbase. Right, and in fact, um, this um, the Alito the uh, the Alito goes nuts, and it activates two other drone ships the, the dallas uh, and the corpus christi my hometown my, or my birth town yay yay corpus christi so the body of christ starts destroying everything <laughs> you know it's an interesting little bit of trivia when the u.s navy was had the los angeles class attack subs mm -hmm. uh they were naming them after of u.s cities mm -hmm. and when they got to the one they wanted to name the corpus christi after the city of corpus christi which 
is long associated with the U.S. Navy. It's got a naval air station there. The, there was an objection from Catholics. Mm-hmm. We don't want you to name a weapon of war after, after the body of Christ. Although, there, you know, Los Angeles are is named after angels. The angel, but. Well, <laughs> actually, technically, that's the Virgin Mary. Well, right. Because it's la, uh, Nuestra Señora la Reina de Los Angeles. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so. It was named after the Blessed Mother. Yeah. yeah. Um, and San Francisco, St. Francis, which is deeply ironic that a weapon of war be named after uh, St. Francis. Francis. Yeah. But to accommodate it, the U.S. Navy changed it to the USS City of Corpus Christi. So that's a little bit of mm. interesting uh Catholic uh, trivia there. Um, so yeah, and it, if it was just angels, I mean, angels blow stuff up. Uh, angels blow stuff up in the Bible. That wouldn't be anything new. <laughs> no kidding. The but angel of having, death. <laughs> having, having the Virgin Mary blowing stuff up. It's like, OK, cool. <laughs> yes, the the uh, hammer of heretics. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I've seen that that picture. Uh, so um, they start blasting the ship all over uh, the, the station all over the place. And that gets on the news. And that's the, the news report that uh, that uh, Mariner sees when she's with Petra. And so she wants to go back to Mariner wants to go back to Douglas station to come to the rescue. And Petra's like, what are we going to do? We're just this little archeology span survey ship. And, uh, but you, you know, she does anyways. And so mm-hmm. Freeman's the one, I mean, Mariner is the one who comes up with the idea to call out the other California class ships. But in the meantime, the Freeman takes the Cerritos to lead the drone ships away from Douglas station, start saving some lives. Um, and that's where they're in the warp and we do the warp core drop. I love the scene where Shax goes down to engineering and he's with Billups and he's got like tears in his eyes. Oh, I've always dreamed of this moment. Yeah. And they have to, they have to turn keys simultaneously. Like it's a, you know, a, a minute man ICBM station, you know, for the U S air force. Yeah, they never had to do that before. And that's actually kind of a bad idea. You, you, you don't want to have to get two people down there to manually turn keys, to eject a core that's about to go critical. <laughs> exactly. And it's interesting because like, thinking of the other times we've seen the core ejected and done this exact thing was a, uh, uh, Voyager do episode. it from the bridge. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Voyager Day of Honor. They ejected the core. We talked about that not too long ago. But uh, yeah, that, that's that's true. Although they didn't blow that one up, they they recovered that one. So um, it, it then, would make a really good mine, though. I mean, that's an antimatter yeah. reactor. Just drop it out. Time, put it, t- tell it when you want it to destabilize, and matter comes into contact with antimatter. You got a nice big bang. <laughs> <laughs> so we get, uh, you know, the Cerritos is now at the mercy of the Alito, about to get destroyed, and that's when all the Cali class ships show up, and we see a lot of the crews that we've met before in other episodes. Yeah. Um, We also see other crews that we've never seen before, some of which are comedic twists on the Cerritos crew. Like there's one where um, where they're they're all gender swapped. And so you have a black man instead of a black woman as the Captain Freeman surrogate. And you've got a female, a giant female um, Bajoran instead of shacks. (laughs) Right. And and Mariner and um, and the equivalents of Mariner and Boimler are insect people. (laughs) (laughs) And they just make buzzing sounds. That's right. That's right. So these are the uh, the ships, the all the uh, California cities, Alhambra, Anaheim, Burbank. Alhambra. Sorry. I will try that again. Alhambra. Uh, oh, this is going to go bad. Anaheim, Burbank, 
Carlsbad. Woohoo! Uh, let's see, Culver City. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where see. Dr. Demento was based. <laughs> well, that's near Hollywood, right? Culver yeah, City. Yeah, it's, it, it's in the greater Los Angeles area. In fact, Paramount Studios is in Culver City, if mm-hmm. I remember correctly, which would make sense given this mm-hmm. is a Paramount production. Uh, let's see, the Fresno, mm-hmm. the Inglewood. Mm-hmm. Joshua Tree, which is good. Mm-hmm. Merced, Merced, mm-hmm. okay. Merced, yeah. Uh, Mount Shasta, Oakland, Pacific Palisades, Reading, Riverside. Ooh, the surfing is good there. <laughs> Sacramento, San Clemente, San Diego, mm-hmm. San Jose, Santa Monica, lots of seats. Sherman mm-hmm. Oaks. Um, I think that's it. I think yeah, Vacaville. We still need El Cajon, though. They need to bring that <laughs> ship online. Yeah. Is is it Vacaville or Vaca? Vaca va- well, it. I mean, it's it's Spanish, but yeah. so it'd be Vacaville. But yeah. uh, you know, you got Anglo's out here pronouncing it, so who knows? Is that like Cowtown? Is that what that means? Cow Cowtown, yeah. <laughs> uh, Vallejo, Van Sitters, or V. I don't know if that was a Texas class, but uh, it shows up. Uh, mm-hmm. West Covina. That was the other one. So I. Mm-hmm. That I'd give a call out to all those California minor cities. <laughs> well, they're not all minor. I mean, right? They're not all minor. Yeah, Oakland Sacramento is a big town. Uh, Oakland, yeah. Sacramento, Los Angeles. Yeah, that's true. Um, so, but they can be minor in our hearts. <laughs> and so they all band together and show that the California class is is greater than the sum of its parts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, they're showing the California class is greater than one damaged Texas class. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, and this is another, I hate to say it, but this is another huge plot hole. How on earth do you pull every California class ship away from its current mission and get them here all at the same moment? At the same time. Were they all that hanging it, out together? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it makes no sense. No, it um, It's especially given the history on Star Trek where for in episode after episode, you're the only ship in the quadrant. You have to go. And 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 it's like, OK, it's, that makes it sound like Starfleet is kind of not that much brother spread over a lot of bread, being able to yank all these ships and have them wherever they are in the galaxy arrive at the same. I mean, that's like choreographically implausible. Star Trek has a habit of doing this at at times where, you know, the Enterprise is the only ship in Sector One, like Mm -hmm. near Earth. And then we have then at other times, Wolf 359, we have every ship in the fleet is there, you know, so it's sort of. Yeah, pick one. <laughs> yeah, also, and they've been doing this multi multiple ships warp in all at once. This has itself become a trope recently, mm. um, where at the last minute, minute, a a an entire fleet arrives and they just warp onto the screen dramatically. And it's like, okay, guys, this is implausible. <laughs> and for even in the real world, this would be implausible. Um, and uh, you know. You'd done this one before. <laughs> right. It's this is this is get this. This was if you're doing the implausible dramatic thing multiple times, almost in a row, you're going to mm. wear through it even faster. We saw this in one episode in Strange New Worlds the, that first mm-hmm. season. We yep. saw it in Picard. I mean, the two most recent new seasons of Star Trek. Yeah, we we it it's they've been in all the new um yeah, Discovery it, too. Yeah. It, in all the new Star Trek 
they've been having the last minute rescue fleet just yeah. warp all at once. And there it is to be intimidating and impressive on screen. Guys, it's time to move on. Give yeah. this one a rest. Find a new gimmick. Yeah, you got to do that. Uh, so as things, so the Alito, of course, is destroyed. And as we're wrapping up, we have the introduction of some new elements that mm -hmm. I'm sure will be important in season three, including the arrival of a new Vulcan science officer to Len, who we had seen previously in, uh, I forget which the episode was. Oh, it was the multiple lower decks where we got to see lower decks of different races. Right, 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 right. So uh, she she was transferred off of the Vulcan crude ship because of her out-of-the-box thinking she was she was nonconformist yeah. right right so in she's a very minor way <laughs> yes yeah and and we had speculated at the time that she was going to show up on the mm -hmm. Cerritos and so now she's finally showing up here and she'll be competition to Tendi next season right right Tendi wants is wants to move up as a science officer and now Talin's going to be in the way and and Tendi being Tendi, you know, gushes all over her. We're now going to be besties. You're my new study buddy. <laughs> Actually, that pairing is going to be great for both of them because they're so going to get on each other's nerves. <laughs> Ten Tendi with her relentless friendliness is going to get on Talin's nerves and Talin with her icy cold intellect is going to get on Tendi's nerves. <laughs> right, right. And as as you mentioned, for the possibly the first time ever in Star Trek, we have a post credit scene where we have um, a debris. So it says in the Cal system, debris from a pack led clump ship floats near a star and among it Rutherford's old implant that Shaq's so, ripped from his face. So you're reading from memory alpha there. Yes. Sorry. Yes, I should have mentioned I was reading from that. So this is the same debris field that. That they where they this left is, behind this is the end of season, yes, this is the end of season one and um and where Shax died, and you know problems are being caused by Badgie, and he ripped the implant off of Rutherford's face and it's left floating in space okay so and so we saw this same debris field a couple episodes of the peanut hamper recovering, and so it's the same thing, and so this tractor beam. Uh, green tractor beam who has green yep. tractor beams uh, locks onto it and uh, beams it aboard. So presumably Badgie will be back. <laughs> so yep. be we, we've, we've got multiple AI threats now between Armus and peanut hamper and Badgie. Um, yep. I'm expecting an, uh, like an AI apocalypse at some point. <laughs> well, is Badgie going to bust out the, uh, the, the megalomaniacal AIs or Maybe. vice versa? Maybe mm -hmm. they've already busted out, busted out. Uh, that would be interesting. So any other notes on this episode, Jimmy? Uh, nope. That's it. Some. All right. So to wrap things up, we'd like to take a moment oh, to think. Oh, our, oh, one oh. note, one note. Um, they give us an early visual cue that the Texas class ships are going to go bad because we get an interior shot as Admiral Buenamigo is giving orders to the Alito. We get an interior shot and can see the computer control panel inside mm -hmm. the Alito. And it's got the same kind of linear graphics as the M1 from the ultimate computer from all right. the way back in Star Trek, the original series. So it's, it's use it's, it's, it's visually the same as the original 
bad computer from <laughs> bad, Star Trek. Bad automated starship. Yes, that's yeah. true. That's true. Um, awesome. Well, right. Yes, because the the M1 was running the Enterprise. So it was a drone ship for that episode. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's, that's we should mention that. Yeah. All right. So let's thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create Secrets of Star Trek, including Peter E., Daniel M., James O., Billy C., and Placid K. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the Secrets of Star Trek in all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. This StarQuest show is also brought to you in part by Jacqueline Brown, the best-selling author of The Light Series. Check out her new release, Altered, on Amazon or any fine bookstore. Learn more about her and her work at sqpn.com slash brown. So that's it from us. We'd love to hear what you thought of The Stars at Night, this Lower Decks episode. You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com slash trek or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash starquestmedia or send an email to trek at sqpn.com or visit our Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. We'll be back next time, as I mentioned, when we'll be discussing the next episode of Prodigy, as I'm going to say, called Asylum. Until then, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Star Trek. Thank you. Live long and prosper and maximum warp me. And once again, I'm Don Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest. And you stole my line. <laughs> oh, you can use it too. And warp me! <laughs> <laughs>